What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Taz. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. All right, y'all, for this episode, we are going back in time. I know it's been a while since we've had a period piece. We will be going back in time to see how the justice system really hasn't changed. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Got you a coffee, oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf. Wow. You've got a really, really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Kindness. Now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments now on Bumble. Our players this week are James Kelly, also known by JC, Corinne's boyfriend, Harry Woodlinger, Frida's husband, Frida Woodlinger, our victim, and Corinne Sykes, our murderess. Corinne Sykes was born in 1923 to her mother, Almina, and her father. I could not get her father's name, but their family was originally from the South. Like many Black families, they actually moved up North during the Great Migration. Of course, the Great Migration, most people were moving from the South to different parts of the world to find better opportunities for housing, better opportunities for jobs, just and to get away from life in the South. Corrine was the youngest of three girls, and her sisters' names were Helen and Florence. Their mom, Amelia, was a washerwoman, and their dad worked in the docks. Now, Corrine was known as a troublemaker. She had gotten kicked out of three schools, and she was said to have emotional outbursts. Um, In 1937, she got into some trouble, some juvenile trouble, and I don't know what it was because she was a juvenile, but she was given the label a juvenile delinquent. The next year, in 1938, a school suggested that maybe she needs to be put into an institution. They tried to put her into, into an institution. However, institutions weren't accepting Black children at the time. So most of her life, she was told that she was a truant and that her mom also was low-key colorist. And she said that Corinne was too dark and she had like a light birthmark. She was like, that's the only good part about you. Mm. I know, right? Not only was she struggling in school, she was illiterate, could not read, could not write. And she was getting kicked out of school because she was fighting girls. She was just doing all types of stuff. Also, her parents, when she was in school stably, her parents would pull her out of school because they said that, you know, she needed to spend time 
working. She would sweep floors at different shops, at different candy stores, trying to bring some money into the house. Now, if you ask anybody, she was skinny. I mean, like skinny, skinny. They said she was a ruler, flat in the front, flat in the back, no curves. Mama was skinny. She was like a little less. She had like, what do they say? Just hit five feet and 110 pounds soaking wet. So tiny little thing. One day, Corinne is standing at the corner and she catches the eye of Mr. James C. Kelly. But y'all can call him J.C. Now, J.C. is a smooth-talking bootlegger. Now, y'all remember this is a historical police, okay? So I'm not talking about the man selling DVDs out the trunk. I'm talking about the man selling the whiskey, okay? He was said to be brown-skinned, real slick hair with the pomade laying it down, smooth-talker, even better walker, you know what I'm saying? He... Mm -hmm. <laughs> He uh, used to rock a wool zoot suit with red straps and a wide brim hat. And he had a pattern handkerchief that he kept on him. Like, he was fresh. He was, he, he was suave, you know what I mean? Now, he owned this barbecue joint, and the restaurant was really a front for a speakeasy. He'd sell moonshine and whiskey by the cup, and he checking out Korean one day, and he's like, listen pretty face like yours, and he come and work for me, okay? He was like, I let you come work, you sell uh, my cups, and I give you $25 a week. They hit it off. He let her kick it in his apartment above the restaurant, and he's like, I even do you one better. I give your mom's a job, but she only get 10 a week. Don't tell her nothing, all right? And I don't even think she had a job. I think he was just like, I take care of everybody, baby. Mm -hmm. She gets $10, too. Mm -hmm. And I heard that she was not the only woman living in that apartment above the speakeasy. I don't doubt it. And I hear her mama ain't even like this man, but she was like, this man said he loves me. And that's all I need. This couple was no stranger to crime. JC had been arrested about 17 times for all types of different shit. And Corinne had just gotten out of jail in May of 1944 after serving an 11-month sentence for stealing jury while she was working at another house. She was working as a waitress at J.C.'s barbecue joint, but business was starting to slow down, and J.C. had a dream of moving on a farm and, you know, living a slow country life. They needed money for that. He tells Corinne that he's going to need just a little bit of her help getting this money so he can live his dream, right? No, no, no. So they can live their right, dream. Right, right, Because it's all about us, baby. I guess Corinne started trying to go out and look for work, but it was hard for her to get a job because she, now she can't pass a background check. So she's like, if y'all don't want me to work these jobs, then I just won't be me. She gets the social security card of Eloise Parker, goes to the agency, passes a background check, and now Miss Parker on December 5th of 1944, goes to work for Mr. Harry and Mrs. Frida Woodlinger. Now, Harry Woodlinger was a well-known realtor. He had a wife and a teenage daughter and their dog, and they all lived together happily on Kamek Street. The home was about a 2,000-square-feet residence, and it was pretty nice. Miss Eloise Parker, hint, hint, is working for the family on December 7th, 1944. Mr. Harry Woodlinger, he leaves the house like he normally does. Their teenage daughter is also gone from the house. And the only people that are left at the house is Mrs. Woodlinger and Corinne. So it's about 11.45 a.m. And Corinne decides that now is the time that she's going to get all the jewelry and valuables. She has a knife and her intention is to scare Frida Woodlinger into just giving her all the items. But listen, I'm not sure exactly what happened inside that home, and reports aren't 100% sure what happened in the home. But if 
Corinne was trying to scare Frida without any type of confrontation to happen, possibly Frida wasn't easily scared and couldn't be spooked that easily. And the next thing that she knows, the knife is being plunged into her multiple times. She reaches for the knife and the knife slices off her ring finger. The finger that held her two-carat diamond ring severed. I mean, it's hanging on by a thread. She dies in the basement of their home. Corinne leaves the house with a fur coat three rings, a pearl necklace, and $100 in cash. They said that the jewelry was about $2,000 worth. Corinne leaves the house. She gets into a car. Now, apparently she gets into a car. I have heard many things that she got into a car that was driven by JC, that she got into a taxi. I also read somewhere that she tried to get a taxi, couldn't get a taxi, and got on the trolley. This happened in 1944. One of those three things happened, and she ends up going to JC's apartment. And JC's apartment is on 23rd near Master. Then she changes out of her bloody tan skirt, changes out of her turquoise top, sees what happens. It doesn't take long for husband Harry Woodlinger to show up because he was supposed to be at work the entire day, but he decided that he was going to take the afternoon off. He was going to play a round of golf with his buddy, Irving Wingrand. It is December in Philly. I don't know who's playing golf at those times, and I don't think that my sources said that Top Golf existed in 1944. So I'm not sure where he was playing golf in December in Philadelphia. However, that was his plan, according to all of the sources. So he decides that he's going to run home, drop off the meat that he had for dinner, grab his golf clubs, and go play a round of golf. But when he gets home, his buddy, Irvin, is in the car waiting for him. He gets up to the stairs of his home, and he realizes that the door is open. And he's like, okay, that's weird. It's 46 degrees outside. Why is the door open? I'm not sure. Maybe the same reason that you're going to play golf in 46-degree weather. Anyways, he opens the door, and he hears their dog just barking, 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 barking. So he's like, what the heck is going on? Like, I don't hear a person like saying, hey, honey, are you home? So he follows where the dog is barking. He goes downstairs to his basement and lying in a bathroom in their downstairs basement is Miss Frida Woodlinger. And the scene is bloody. I mean, it's it's almost horrifying. He runs out. He calls the police and sirens just light up that street. The police come out. The community immediately finds out. They said that everybody was in the street just standing outside their homes, watching to see what happens, to see if her body comes out. One of the neighbors, you know the neighbors, Mrs. Benjamin Jen, she was out front and she was ready to talk to all the news reporters. Everybody got a quote from Miss Benjamin, Miss Benjamin Jen. And she was saying that she had seen Sykes. She was like, they're maid. I just saw their maid leaving. Mr. Harry Woodlinger was like, you know what? Hired a living maid, so she should be here. What's her name? What's the name of your maid? Oh, well, her name is Miss Eloise Parker. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season, you can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. Streaming October 6th on Paramount+. Plus. First place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back 
There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. Now, JC had a little plan up his sleeves, and he ends up leading the police off his trail initially. The police end up pulling up to an apartment that's two blocks away from where JC actually stayed. The police come up, bust the door and look around, and they find Frida Woodlinger's ring under a rug. Police think they're onto something. They start doing a little investigation, but they're still missing the pearl necklace, two other rings, and a fur coat. So the media is going crazy. White women everywhere are clutching their pearls. They need maids. They need somebody to clean their houses. But are they going to get robbed and lose their jewels? Are they going to die? So It's mayhem, I tell you. It's mayhem. <laughs> so Corinne gets picked up Saturday, December 9th, and the police find out what her real identity is because they dust for fingerprints at the scene. And because of her previous crime, they're like, mm, pretty sure Corinne Sykes is our main suspect right now. They go looking for Corinne, and they find her in the apartment above the speakeasy, and she was arrested without a fight. Now, Mr. James C. Kelly was arrested for accessory after the fact and picked up a few hours later. Mm-hmm. Now, in right. J.C.'s real apartment, they find a pawn ticket for some items, not free to stuff, but for two wristwatches, a stick pin, and a brooch with the initials D.A. You, J.C., who is D.A.? We don't know. The police don't either. So they're like, okay, we see what's going on here. You guys are working domestically, stealing, and pawning rich white folks' shit. They just came up with that. Bet they were real proud of that one. Mm-hmm. Now, they got it up in their mind that these people are continuously running this scheme, and it's just escalating. How much proof we have? I don't know, but it's back in the day. But this is what they've decided. Now, Frida's brother talks to the news, and he's tells them that the butcher knife that was used to stab his sister is from their home. And it went missing on December 5th of 1994. He talks to the Courier News and says he merely thought it was misplaced. But, quote, all this time, this beast had it in her possession and killed my sister with it. Sir, calm down. Calm down. This beast? She's 110 soaking wet relaxed. So they take her down to the police station. And at first, the police ask her about it. She says, straight up, I did not kill that woman. They're like, okay, well, who did it? She leans back. She crosses her arms. She don't know who did it. She don't know nothing. And then she changes her story. She's like, oh, there was these big scary men at the house. I got scared. I ran out. They're like, man, we don't believe that shit at all. She's like, oh, okay. And then she finds out or either she sees or they tell her that J.C. done got arrested. And so then after that, she's like, J.C. had nothing to do with anything. I did it. I got the job merely to, to rob her. It's on me. I acted alone. You have nothing to worry about. It's it's on me. And they're like, mm, let's keep pushing a little deeper. Finally, she tells the police that, okay, yes, she did murder her. Okay, she did kill her. And she stabbed and she stabbed and she really likes those jewels. I mean, she she's, it's because she really likes jewels. She, she It was too raw, but it wasn't just her big, crazy, elaborate idea. JC put her up to it. 
he orchestrated the entire thing. She said that he specifically wanted her to get the job at the Woodlingers because he had already cased the joint ahead of time and knew what they had. He was the one that picked her up and took her home because he was staying just, what, a block down the street because he knew what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. They hear this, and the police are like, okay, great, are you willing to sign a written confession? She says yes and signs a written confession. And remember, you guys, she's completely illiterate, so she didn't write the written confession, and she sure as hell did not read the written confession, but she did sign the written confession. In 2020, City Lab of Pittsburgh released a study that ranked Cleveland as the worst city in America for Black women to live. A new podcast called Living for We is trying to figure out why and how to change that. The podcast interviews Cleveland residents about their experiences at work, at school, during visits to the doctor's office, and while in the community with each other in an attempt to answer the question, is Cleveland really as bad as they say it is for Black women? Executive produced and hosted by Marlene Harris-Taylor, produced by NPR's IdeaStream Media Public in partnership with senior producer Hannah L. Reach of Evergreen Podcasts and with creative direction and production by Hey Friend Hey. The podcast covers topics like education, healthcare, and workplace challenges for black women, speaking with guests ranging from age 7 to 94. Episodes regularly include segments with Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, a national award-winning psychologist and professor about the unfair expectations society places on black women, asking her for advice and how to cope and furthermore, how to challenge these ideas. Find Living for We wherever you listen to podcasts and on ideastream.com. She has her first hearing in front of the judge and she's charged with murder and robbery and she has to wait in the Maya Menzing prison without bail. JC was charged with accessory after the fact and was given a $10,000 bail. Then Corinne just sits in custody. She sits in custody for like nine months until she is given a lawyer. Finally, uh, lawyer Raymond Pace Alexander decided that he was going to represent her. She was given him. And apparently everybody had been reaching out to Raymond Alexander because he's a really prominent Black lawyer at the time. And I read an article that said that he was away nursing his wife back to health because his wife is in the hospital because she like broke her back and everybody is hounding this man to take this case. He decides to take the case, and the first thing is to see if she is competent enough to stand trial. So he gets all the experts in, and psychiatrists talk to her. They give her an IQ test. Turns out she has an IQ of 63. And they're like, she has the mental capacity of a child. She sees three different psychiatrists. They're like, yeah, she's suffering from hysteria. She's got these wild emotional outbursts. And they say that she has a, quote, mental condition, and very low intelligence. But you know, back then, any woman that acted out of line, you were no, you were thought to be hysterical. And that was almost like a mental condition. We can argue, like, was she actually suffering from hysteria or was she just a woman with feelings? I think some of her background may give a good argument for either or. But at this time, it also wasn't hard to lock women up for this. Like, 
There's even oh, some no. cases where women wanted to leave their husband or when a husband wanted to divorce his wife and didn't feel like dealing with her. Hysteria. He just lock her up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just lock her up. It's crazy. So it's, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, however, when this news comes out before the trial, black people are like, okay, listen, there is like no way that she's going to receive the death penalty because this is definitely a death penalty case. In the Philadelphia Tribune, which is a really popular black publication, they were like, basically, they were like, listen, they got white psychiatrists to analyze a black woman for killing a white woman. And these white psychiatrists are saying that she is mentally unfit, saying that she has a low IQ. It would be wild if they put her in their electric chair. Like the headlines were before the trial were electric chair unlikely. What the Philadelphia Tribune was saying, and what I agree with, is that this is a clear indication of a case where if she's mentally unfit, if she's emotionally unstable, prison is not a good place. The electric chair is definitely not a good place. This is the time where rehabilitation and treatment is the best option. So all these think pieces are coming out. Pictures of her and newspapers are coming out and the headlines are crazy. Like one of the headlines I saw had her picture on it. It was before trial and it said, Corinne Sykes, physically an adult, mentally a child. Wow. Like, I know, girl. All of this is coming out and they're starting to feel good. Maybe they will get, you know, treatment. Maybe we can plead insanity. Maybe we have, maybe there's a chance in this trial. However, inside of those prison walls, the guards were like, "Mm, I don't know. I think she's faking hysteria. I really do. And I don't know how the guards' words became bigger than the psychiatrist's words, but all of a sudden, she was found mentally fit and gets ready to go to trial. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. So the trial was held on March 12th of 1945. Brooks Running has a new shoe for you runners out there. Did you hear that? Better turn up your volume. In fact, turn it up to the max. Introducing the all-new Ghost Max. It's got all kinds of things to make your knees and ankles feel protected, like Max Cushion, Max Soft Landings with DNA Loft V2 Foam, and Max Smooth Rides with their Glide Roll Rocker. Feel better on your run with Ghost Max. Learn more at brooksrunning.com. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Got you a coffee, oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf. You've got a really, really great taste. Really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Planned out. Planned out. Kindness. Now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments. Now on Bumble. Her judge was Judge Vincent A. Carroll, also known as the Hanging Judge. So in his court, sometimes it could be a little confusing at where he stood. Was he the lawyer? on the prosecution team, or was he the quote-unquote unbiased judge? The whole trial, he would interrupt the proceedings just going at whoever was on defense. Like, who's really asking the questions here? Corinne's lawyer's first route was a sanity hearing, but then he ditched that plan and decides we're going to plead for mercy. He gets to talking about how she was under the influence of her boyfriend, J.C., In the opening statement, he tells the jury, quote, We will not attempt to exculpate Corinne in this shocking killing. 
We will not try to show that she didn't do it. We will not ask you to discharge her from responsibility. Instead, we will ask you to bring in a proper, safe, and intelligent verdict under which she will be placed in an institution for life. And he yeah, begins, you know, telling them that JC sent this girl to do a job and how responsible can she truly be held? She's just a woman. She's just a lady. Doctors who examine Corinne take the stand saying that she has the mind of a child, a low IQ, low impulse control, and a constitutional inferior. I saw um, a, a thing where they were talking about the judge and the judge interrupted the psychiatrist. It was like, okay, so she's a constitutional inferior. And the psychiatrist is like, yes. And the judge is like, so are there other constitutional inferiors walking around outside free from prison? And the, first of all, why are you asking that question? Because you're not cross-examining. And the psychiatrist is like, well, yes, if all people that were constitutional inferiors were institutionalized, well, there wouldn't be anybody left in the factories. Mm. I know. We need know. them. That's why they don't want to educate Black people because they want to keep you as a constitutional inferior so that they can use you for their factories and not bring you up in real jobs. And then when you do work in the factory and you work your fingers to the bone and maybe you want to move up and make something better of your life, they're like, no, 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 because you don't have an education. However, even though you may know this company inside and out, I'm going to hire somebody above you because I still do not care about your well-being. Period. Now, Corinne's mom also takes a stand and tells the jury about Corinne's upbringing how she's always been a subnormal child in school, and she just never used the brain that the good Lord gave her. Dang, Both of Mama, Corinne's you sisters could at least tried, right? Both of Corinne's sister testify. Helen Allen gets up there and she says that JC visited her and told her, "quote Hold yourself together." Corinne did it. Now the other sister, Florence Sykes, testifies that she demanded that Corinne tell her the truth, and Corinne's answer was. I swear I did not do it. Corinne takes the stand and tells the court that J.C. made her rob the house. She said that he told her if she didn't do it, he would kill her and her mother. She said that she did take the job with the intention to rob them. But when she was cross-examined, all the articles are saying that every time the lawyers would try and press her about the real details of the murder, she would just get super emotional. Finally, they say, why did you kill Mrs. Woodlinger? And she starts to cry again. And then someone says from the courtroom, oh, girl, tell the truth. And she starts sobbing, sobbing. And she says, J.C. Now, J.C., at this time, he is out on bail. He has his charges. He's waiting to go to trial. They were going to have him as a witness, but, you know, they didn't want him to incriminate himself. However, I, so I saw multiple articles saying, like, what did he say versus is he allowed was he allowed to actually take the stand and still the things that he said were brought into court even though he couldn't be a witness because don't want to incriminate himself now um he did say to the police that he never ever put Corinne up to robbing the Woodlingers, or anybody for that matter. As a matter of fact, he didn't even know that she was in town. He thought that she was in Jersey the entire time. And when all this hubbub started, he goes up to where she's staying in the apartment above his restaurant. And he sees her and he's like, yo, like, 
what's going on? I see this money. I see these jewels. Like, people are looking for you. And she gives him one of the rings, one of the diamond rings. And he's like, yo, you cannot have this. And so he gives the diamond ring to her sister, Helen. And he tells Helen to throw it down the drain pipe, which makes sense because he's telling Helen to keep it together, right? And when the police ask him, and the police also tell this to the court, he said, you know, that he trusts her. Like, she, she's not a bad person. She would never steal. I, I have her handling my money all the time, and she ain't never stole anything from me. And threats, I would never, I would never threaten anybody especially not that pretty lady and her mama. Now, once trial is all said and done and closing arguments come up, defense attorney Raymond Pace Alexander pleads to the jury and says, quote, despite the terrible features of this crime, shocking as they are, if our only penalty is to strap that child in the electric chair, turn on the current and snuff out her life, we have not advanced very far from the dark ages. The prosecution, on the other hand, you know they're not having it. The prosecution, his name was per, uh, Mr. Lipschutz. He said, quote... Dr. Lipschutz from Rugrats? Oh, he is Dr. Lipschutz. He says, quote, This girl lured her victim by freak references with murder and robbery in her heart, then slewed her without mercy, leaving a motherless young daughter. If she were able to do such a cunning and terrible thing with a moronic mind, then heaven forbid that she could have been endowed with more intellect. The law says when the crime is heinous, atrocious, and vicious, there is but one adequate punishment, and that is death. After closing arguments, the jury leaves and they deliberate for five hours, which I think that would have given me a little bit of hope. But once they walk in, all the air in there, they knew that it wasn't going to turn good. The jury forewoman, her name was Adeline C. Hyde, and the forewoman was, of course, a white suburban housewife and she was the mother of two small children. She stood up before the packed courtroom and said that they found Corinne guilty in the first degree. On June 7th, 1945, the jury recommends death by the electric chair and Corinne collapses when she hears the news. I think, you know what? You know, I think I would collapse too. Yes, I would. <laughs> you know, it don't take nothing for me to pass say, out. You know, you fall out, so. <laughs> all that I was stress actually... and all those people in that courtroom, it's going to be hot. Ah, I'd fall out. i fall out, too. Yeah, um, I'm definitely I'm definitely breaking down at that point. I, I don't, I've never passed out, so I can't say that I would actually do that, but I'm losing it. Now, Raymond Alexander, Corinne's lawyer, immediately applies for a new trial for so many reasons. One, Judge Carroll is clearly biased. Raymond's like, I can't even get my point across because every time I open my mouth, here go judge, cut me off. How are you even supposed to take in what I'm saying and, and the point I'm trying to prove when I'm I'm not even getting cross-examined by them, I'm getting cross-examined by the judge. That's not even how it's supposed to work. Right. Two, Raymond found out after the trial that J.C. burnt the fur coat to get rid of the evidence. Now, this is obviously a point that he had more to do with it and was planning the whole thing. Things the jury needed to hear and take into consideration. 
after this time, like I told you, the white women are up in arms. Who's going to clean their houses? They need to be safe. So the mayor responded by making the agencies tighten up their rules on who they're sending to people's houses. He's like, before y'all have somebody enter somebody else's home, you need to do a little bit more than a background check. I'm going to need you to check some references also. I mean, I get it also, but like how many jobs have you been my reference, Tazzy? All of them. Plenty. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) Corinne's mom was talking to the press a lot. The 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 media was coming to her home in North Philly, and they said her home was immaculate, like, lived real nice, real, real cute spot. But she's on these cameras telling them her daughter is innocent. She said, quote, but I guess she's kind of a dummy. She met up with this JC, and she gave him everything she had. Now he's left her in this awful trouble. He's so smart. I think he's behind all this. Why, you, why couldn't you have her back and not throw her down at the same time? Mm-mm. She's not that type of mother. Obviously. She will find a way. Her lawyer, Alexander, he is just going in appeal after appeal, deny after deny. I believe he got a total of four different stays of execution. On May 29th of 46, they said, okay, we will wait till June. On June, they said they'll have to wait because in July and August, the board doesn't get together, so they had to wait again. I think they they moved again. But the thing was, the lawyer, he wasn't getting his money like he was supposed to. Alma, the mom, and the sisters, they were living life high on the hog. He wrote a letter to Alma and said, quote, your daughters have fine clothes, furs, coats, and jewelries. I have put up hundreds of dollars in costs out of my pocket, and I have spent thousands of dollars in costs out of my pocket, and I have not received one penny for any of my services. And goddammit, like, I'm sick of it. You know, like, I'm doing a lot of work. And he is, like, a huge lawyer at the time. He's got credentials. He's working with the NAACP. He's got the mentors. He... Is somebody that's prominent, and you play it in his face. He gets this case after all of his appeals are tired out. You know, you after that, you can go in front of the Supreme Court. I read that he got in front of the Supreme Court twice, of course, on the grounds of her mental capacity, that although she's 20, she's almost 22 at the time, after all these appeals, she has the mental capacity of a child. And both times, the high court was like, mm, no. We are not going to overturn this. They said that she was, quote, a perpetrator of an extremely cruel, cold-blooded, and atrocious murder. After that, the only hope that they have for her not to get into the electric chair is to get a pardon from the governor. I mean, he's done the stays of execution. Maybe we'll get lucky. The governor never responded to the pardon plea. On October 14th, 1946... Corinne was getting ready for her execution. She had actually gotten very close with the reverend that was at the prison. Hours before she was set to be executed, she wrote a final letter to her mother. She handed it to the guard. She asked for the letter to be delivered. She then had her last meal, which was prepared by the superintendent's chef. I wasn't able to find out what she had. And then she walked into the death chamber at the Rockview State Prison. Everybody said that she was very calm, except for you could tell that her fists were clenched very, very tightly. 
They said that since she was a woman, they did not shave her entire head. They just like shaved a piece in the back for the electric shock that she would receive. Because she had to have. They said that yes, because she's a lady. Didn't give her dignity anywhere else. They took her to the death chamber and they said that her eyes were just open the entire time. They were. She was scanning the room, watching everybody that was there. She didn't blink once, even when they put the bag over her head. She didn't even blink. She was strapped in at twelve thirty one. AM, the 2,000 volts of electric shock was put into her body and her time of death was 12.37 AM. They say that there were about 10,000 people outside of the prison trying to get a glimpse of her, of maybe her body when she left, or just people out there being nosy. Her funeral was held on October 17th and about 3,000 people attended. Of those... Guest. Her mom was also there and her lawyer, Raymond Alexander. Many say that JC was protected by the police because he was a bootlegger and he paid them off and everyone is sure he and the police did favors for each other all the time. In 1950, a rumor came about that said Mr. Woodlinger was on his deathbed and he actually confessed to the crime. Now that's just a rumor. Corinne's lawyer is like, don't believe it, but you never know. I don't know. I done made this whole theory up in my head that I have been running on. So here's my theory. You want to hear it? Sure. I, you can, I can. So here's my theory. So my theory is that, you know, Mr. Woodlinger is a real estate person. So maybe they know each other because he was the one that sold the speakeasy to JC. And he told JC that he wanted his wife to disappear and he had some jewels or whatever. And so then JC was like, I can make that happen for you. And so they worked together to set up Corinne to kill Mrs. Woodlinger and both of them would get away with it because JC only got five years for accessory after the fact. And he was fighting that thing hard. And Mr. Woodlinger got to live out his life. I mean, that's my theory. It is completely made up. That is story told by Marah. But, you know, my mind gets swirling. <laughs> to wrap this thing up, Raymond goes on to be the first black city councilman and the first black judge of the common pleas court. So congratulations to him. These niggas can't hold you back, you know. So what, they didn't pay you. You still made something great out of yourself. Congratulations. All right, that's the end of the story. It is time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I didn't do it, but if I did, JC, I see what you were doing with trying to run the police off your trail. I see what you were doing. However, I would have planted the ring even further away. Two blocks from your house, they're still looking locally. Plant it further away. I didn't do it, but if I did, I would have went with the JC did it route. I think that... You know, as terrified as she was, she could have spun it. She could have said, oh, it got on there because I was right there and I witnessed this horrible thing, the way she's crying and feeling sorry or whatever. But I think she should have just pointed the finger. You know, they said that you couldn't really touch JC, so she probably already knew that. Right. And was like, if I do get off, what's going to happen when I get out? Right. I ain't do it, but if I did, if you planned on robbing this woman, do the slow route. You got hired on the 5th. Right. Robbed and murdered her on the 7th. You got to wait till... You got to lay low. Yeah. Build you a little gotta trust lay low. Right. 
build a little trust. Steal things every once in a while. Every once in a while. You ain't got to get all the big money items at first. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have stayed there that entire time. Murdered her. Had a change of clothes. Called, the, went out into the street screaming and yelling, oh my God, oh my God, somebody has killed the lady. She's, they've killed the lady and uh, made a whole big old fit, told a whole story about these men that did not exist. Mm. You could have thrown people off, but they was dusting for fingerprints. Even still, like you may have been able to do something, girl. All you had to do was get rid of the weapon. It's crazy because it's like people still getting set up today by not asking for a lawyer and signing some paperwork that they didn't read and write. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they will hold that piece of paperwork against you knowing that she's illiterate. So who knows what you signed? They may say, this says that you exactly. are pleading innocent, but it really is right now a whole crime that you didn't even know you did right. or that you didn't Plus, say or maybe one, one word. One that you saw, but two you never even heard of, but you just fit the description, you know? Exactly. And with literature and being illiterate, like one small comma could change the entire trajectory of the paper. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, uh, there should be still, if there's not, not, because there are people that are illiterate that do crimes and have, be, that are interrogated, but they definitely should have somebody there that is almost like a mediator. Even if you don't want a lawyer, somebody that is just there on your side to read the uh, things a to you. third party. But the thing is, like, they don't want it to be just, so why would they do that? That's why they get right. to lie to us and trick us, but lying to them is a crime. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do it, but if I did... I don't know, girl. I felt like you had a lot of pent-up anger towards your mama. You should have just maybe... Nah, I think her mama would have been like, girl, you tried. You thought... Mm, 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 mm. Parole or no parole? Parole. I don't think she did it. And if she did it, she definitely one. She doesn't. I don't feel like she has the mental capacity to be fully responsible in that sense. Correct. And two, I don't think she did it. And if she did, I don't think it was her idea. Like her past is not violent. Mm-hmm. Will she steal? Yes. But. To her, that's just a victimless crime. These people have money anyways. Right. So, yeah, I think that she needed to be put into a place that is actually going to help her. And I think treatment is the actual yeah. <laughs> necessary step. And because probably, this reminds me of... She probably needs some type of assistance anyways. Like Right. This if, reminds me so much of Wanda Jean. Like, right. you wanted to execute her, but really she does not have the mental capacity to have impulse control. Mm -hmm. And so those things deserve to be treated when there is clearly some type, some lack of mental capability. And I think even more so than Wanda Jean, y'all are telling me that this woman is childlike. So Wanda Jean, I think they more so focused on her impulse control, and yes, she had a lower IQ, but it's to the point and where... And her head saying, trauma, her right, head damage. Right. But you were saying that this woman is childlike. She's, quote, a child in the body of an adult. So why is she getting adult sentencing and adult trial and adult punishments when you were telling us that she is not on this level? Why are we holding her accountable? on this level. So I think it definitely should have went a different route. She should definitely be in a facility. Yeah. I agree. 
that's all. I think that's the end of our show. We did it. We did it. We, we did, did it. No we did it. Hooray. All right. Um, let's read some reviews and get the heck out of here. All right. This one is from Laurel. Five stars. Excellent pod. This podcast is well-researched and well-written. The storytelling is fun to listen to and easy to flow. And they honestly highlight topics of what justice looks like when you are not white. Something not talked about enough. Great job, ladies. Thanks, girl. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the things that you do for me to see. I just love when I go on Apple for reviews and then I start to type in our name and I'm actually like, I'm actually just going to click on the true crime category. Oh, hey, us. Mm-hmm, that's what I do. <laughs> This one says, best podcast host ever. PMP in process. Me too, girl. I stumbled upon this podcast after watching an episode of Snap and wanting to know what happened to the murder. Listen, this podcast is the best ever. The suspense, humor, and passion they use to tell the stories about these murderesses keeps the listeners engaged and wanting more. I laugh so loud, I know I'm about to get a write-up at work. Definitely recommend adding this to your list. Side note... As a podcaster myself, I get that not everyone is going to love what you put out there. To the negative Nancys who think Taz and Mara are insensitive, please understand that this podcast is entertainment and not meant to be offensive to the victims or their family. If you want something super serious, stick to Snap or the ID channel. Well, you told them. Yeah. I'm not serious about no, I nothing. I feel like we're y'all. serious. I think... But I do think that we're serious. We just happen to be funny. Like, I tell you know, everybody but that, I mean, that like, we are I'm, not I'm a not comedy that, podcast. We're I'm just not, funny motherfuckers. I'm not that dry for nothing, you know? It just... I've got what you call charisma. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> for just, me, it's just that spark. I'm just charming in that way. It just gravitates you towards me. Oh, <laughs> Well, all right, friends. Um, you guys can keep up with us and get all of our charm on all of our social media platforms. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Sisters Who Kill, on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod, TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. You can shoot us an email, Sisters Who Kill at gmail.com. Anything else for you? Talk to us, we talk back. Bye. Bye.